Approaching zero hour in one of the most contentious confirmation battles in American history as the Senate moves on the Kavanaugh nomination. The latest today on The Standard. Texas Standard is a production of KUT Austin, KERA North Texas, Houston Public Media, and Texas Public Radio in San Antonio. With support from Rand Group, software delivered as promised. No surprises. I'm David Brown. One school official calls it the thermonuclear option. Mass closings of schools under consideration in Dallas. We'll hear what's happening. Also, communication breakdown. A quarter century after the dot-com revolution, rural Texas still waiting for reliable internet. With the Red River Showdown set for Saturday, remembering a game of gridiron chicanery the Longhorns might sooner forget. Plus, the week in Texas politics and a whole lot more. It's Texas Standard Time. No matter where you are, it's Texas Standard Time on this very big news day, Friday, October 5th, 2018. I'm David Brown. Let's get right to our top story. As we go to air in the Texas capital city, it seems that much of the normal activity is slow to a crawl, as in offices and homes across the Lone Star State, people turned on their TVs and radios and logged into streaming video to watch what is certain to go down as one of the most momentous votes in the confirmation of a Supreme Court nominee in America's history. Brett Kavanaugh has been accused of sexual misconduct by three women and a confirmation battle became so charged with acrimony on both sides that in the minds of many commentators, the process itself and disagreements over the nominee's guilt and the veracity of his accusers have further divided an already deeply divided United States. And so it comes to this, a closer vote, a procedural vote, actually, to limit further debate on the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to 30 hours, clearing a path to a full confirmation vote this weekend. Following these events on Capitol Hill for the Houston Chronicle, we are joined by Washington reporter Kevin Diaz. Uh, Kevin, as I understand it, the vote has just concluded. Yes, just uh, and, and to anybody who wasn't paying attention, it was 51-49. 51-49 in favor of cloture. Uh, the vote was largely along party lines, but not entirely. Uh, there were a few uh, very interesting votes here. Right, yeah, both sides can uh, claim a bipartisan imprint on their point of view uh, because uh, Senator Manchin of West Virginia facing a tough re-elect um, abandoned his party and went along with the Republicans. And uh, Lisa Murkowski of Alaska, who everybody had been looking at uh, closely for the last couple of weeks, uh, abandoned her party and voted against going ahead with the Kavanaugh nomination. So that's uh, Joe Manchin, the uh, third of West Virginia, voting yes for cloture. Lisa Murkowski of Alaska uh, saying no. She uh, Republican. Uh, Senators Jeff Flake of Arizona, of course, uh, Susan Collins of Maine and uh, uh, Senator Murkowski we just talked about long considered the three Republican holdouts. It uh, wasn't clear what they would do exactly. Uh, Jeff Flake and Susan Collins voting yes on cloture. Is that the final word here? Do we expect that a final vote on the actual confirmation will reflect what we've just witnessed? Not necessarily. Um, Collins has made it clear that uh, she was voting yes only on procedural grounds, but would uh, announce her final position later this afternoon, 3 o'clock Eastern. So tune in for that. Um, generally, yes, these, these, these procedural votes reflect what the final vote is going to be. But in, in, in delicate issues like this, sometimes senators just don't want to be accused of uh, closing off debate. 
So it, it is possible that people who voted one way on, on whether or not to proceed uh, could, could actually switch their vote. So the drama continues, in essence. Say, say a little bit more about this, because if your ultimate vote isn't also going to be uh, what you voted here on cloture, uh, why, why, why vote the way you are right now? I mean, is there any idea, for example, what Collins might ultimately decide when it comes to uh, the Kavanaugh confirmation? Yeah, well, Collins, who's also in a, in a tough spot in Maine, uh, it's a Republican state. Uh, she might just want to be able to at least face her constituents and say, look, this is how I, I'm fine. In the end, I'm going to vote yes, or in the end, I'm going to vote no. But one thing I'm sure not going to do is I'm going to I'm not going to vote to just stop debate. And and so, uh, you know, that that that's a consideration. It, it's sometimes it's a, it's a political. It's a it's a it's a way of saving face. And in, in, in essence, I mean, I'm not saying that's exactly what Collins is doing mm-hmm. exactly by voting. Yes, she's she is voting to limit debate. But uh, I guess that 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 example would probably apply better to to Manchin. Um, so, you know, but there there are little games that politicians play. I mean, this is politics after all. So uh, they can they can sort of shade their votes and or buffer their votes uh, by voting one way on uh, on debate and another way on the final issue. It is probably important to underscore the fact that this is a procedural vote. Did uh, did senators have any idea as they entered the chamber today how this might wind up? Uh, no, um, th- this has been one of the fascinating things about this entire episode. Normally, and I've been covering Congress for nearly 20 years, uh, th- these, these, uh, these, these big votes are foreordained. Uh, you go into them knowing how it's going to end up. I mean, yes, there's a lot of jockeying for position. There's a lot of rhetoric. There's a lot of grandstanding and chest thumping. But in the end, you know how the vote's going to go. Uh, most uh, legislative leaders uh, are, are loath to even call up a vote if they don't know how mm-hmm. it's going to end. So this has really been unusual because there actually was some drama right down to the end. I, I, you know, I don't know if, if, if deep down in his heart of hearts, uh, Majority Leader Mitch McConnell knew that he had uh, Mansion uh, or, or, or knew that he had Flake. Right. Uh, and, but um, uh, that, that's what's really been uh, unusual about this entire thing. Um, it, 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 uh, it, it, there actually has been suspense. We're almost out of time, but do you have a sense that people are satisfied with the process so far or here as after the Thomas uh, confirmation proceedings? Is there a sense that the system's broken? I don't think anybody's satisfied with the way this system uh, played out, the way this this process worked out. Um, We'll be talking about this and debating this for years. Uh, just like we were with with uh, Anita Hill, um, you know, the, and, and both sides have a case to make. The, uh, the the Texas Republican senators, both Ted Cruz and and John Cornyn, based a lot of their position. They vote, but by the way, they both voted yes, which is no surprise. But uh, they were both heavily critical of, of Democrats for, uh, in in their view, politicizing these allegations, right. bringing them up late. And so on. And then you've got the Democrats who say that uh, they don't think that uh, Christine Ford's story really got a fair shake. It wasn't adequately in, uh, investigated by the FBI. Right. Too, much, too, 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 too little effort. We are uh, headed toward a final confirmation vote over the weekend. Kevin Diaz, Washington correspondent for the Houston Chronicle, will be covering it and we will be reading. Thanks so much, Kevin. We sure, sure do appreciate it. Good to be with you. Take care.
As the population of Dallas continues to balloon, quite the opposite is happening to the number of kids attending Dallas public schools. It's shrinking. Now the second largest school district in Texas is considering an option which the president of the Dallas ISD school board describes as as close as you can get to thermonuclear war in the school business. Namely, mass school closures. Eva Marie Ayala is an education reporter for the Dallas Morning News. She has the story and she joins us now. Eva Marie, thanks for speaking with us on the Texas Standard. Hey, thanks for having me. Now this plan, as I understand it, is all talk now, nothing set in stone. Uh, But what exactly are they talking about doing? Mass school closures. What does that mean? Well, right now they're looking at how to plan for the future, how they want to attract students back to the district. And that includes building some new school programs. But at the same time, they're looking at how to how do they balance enrollment issues that they have? They have a number of schools that have low enrollments, maybe, you know, 50 percent full. So they're looking at how to best balance that and potentially close up to 22 schools. Uh, Tell us a little bit about this issue that the Dallas ISD faces in terms of attrition of of, of students. What's going on? Well, it's it's a problem that's not uncommon in many urban areas. You have families that are moving to the suburbs. Uh, You have families that are making other choices. And in Dallas, many families are choosing to go to charter schools. You have about 34,000 kids who live in DISD boundaries but are attending charter schools. And that isn't spread out evenly among the district. That's mostly concentrated in the southern part of Dallas. So you have a number of campuses in that area that aren't being utilized. So if, if they are considering the possibility of mass school closures. What does mass mean in this context? How many schools might actually be closed if they decide to go this route? The initial plan looks at closing maybe 22 schools. Wow. Now that is far from final. The trustees have to talk about it and look at what the logistics are. You know, already they're saying, okay, well, some of this doesn't make sense. You have kids that would be crossing, you know, very busy streets or even dark rail tracks, uh, light rail tracks. So those are options that they know off the bat that they don't want to consider. But, you know, uh, most trustees agree that there's going to be some tough talks ahead to try and figure out what exactly they do need to do. We've heard of school districts like Houston ISD and Austin ISD, consider large school consolidations in the past. Is this something that Dallas has been mulling over for a while? Yes, this is an unusual. Dallas recently closed a handful of schools going into this school year. And in 2012, Dallas also closed nearly a dozen schools. Wow. Uh, So uh, there's another issue I suppose we should also mention here, and, and it goes beyond just the numbers of students attending. It's that you have a lot of schools that are getting rather long in the tooth. Yes, the average age of schools in Dallas ISD is about 51.7 years, so almost 52 years. And nationwide, that looks more like 44 years. So, it, you know, they need to do some massive revamps. They need to do some upgrades, some technology. So they're also looking at how to replace some schools and build some schools. Uh, obviously, they're trying to save some money here, but this is going to cost a lot of money, too, I would imagine. Uh, they're looking to maybe pump in about one to two billion dollars for new facility needs to try and open up some new schools and revamp them. But they're hoping that 
that in the long run they can save some money for operations costs by consolidating uh, utilities and uh, campus leadership and things of that nature. Eva Marie Ayala is following this story as education reporter for the Dallas Morning News. We'll link to her latest at texasstandard.org. Eva Marie, thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thank you. With early Texas reaction to the Kavanaugh vote on social media, here's Wells Dunbar. Yes, Brett Kavanaugh's Supreme Court nomination advancing to a final vote in the United States Senate, and seemingly everyone is watching on social media via Twitter. KWO2 says they think the cloture vote predicts the appointment vote and singles out Joe Manchin for criticism, saying he is clearly not a Democrat, although technically he is. Meanwhile, also on Twitter, Mr. Josco tells us, thank goodness it's time to end this circus and get a qualified and respected judge on the Supreme Court. It's also the talk on our Facebook page, facebook.com slash Texas Standard. Lots more reactions there, David. I'll be back with some more of those later in the show. Wells Dunbar is our social media editor. Tweet him at Texas Standard. Join the conversation on Facebook. Wells Dunbar will be joining us once again in 35 minutes. Stay with us. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group, providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas Oncology, with a reminder that October is Breast Cancer Awareness Month. To aid early detection, all women over the age of 40 should undergo routine screening, like yearly mammograms. More at texasoncology.com. You're tuned to the Texas Standard. For all the technological innovation making urban life faster and more convenient, there's a quiet revolution taking place in food, a shift to simpler times. Some call it farm to fork, a movement away from processed foods and a return to growing and providing eats that are locally grown and natural. In South Dallas, there's an urban farm leading the charge trying to bring fresh, healthy food to a neighborhood long struggling with getting access to such options. As Courtney Collins of KERA North Texas tells us, Bonton Farms is now opening a cafe. In true Bonton Farms fashion, nearly everything planted around the cafe's patio will be edible. You like pizza? Yeah. Try that, that's the seasoning you have on pizza. Take one leaf of that and one leaf of that, oregano and basil, and you'll taste like pizza. The herbs and veggies going into the soil are there by design. Once the market at Bonton Farms opens, there will be indoor and outdoor seating. And executive director Darren Babcock wants customers to have a front row farm-to-table view. I want people to be out here watching and eating and have the chefs come out and pick the herbs that are going to be, you know, seasoning for their food. Babcock started Bonton Farms in 2012. It began as a little garden attached to his house and grew into a large working farm. He hires a lot of people with criminal histories and has made educating staff and visitors about the benefits of nutrition the focal point. He says the market, which will sell fresh food and serve breakfast and lunch, is the next step for the neighborhood, one that has faced many challenges. We have more than double the rate of cancer and stroke and diabetes and heart disease and childhood obesity than the county we're in. And so the work that we do is trying to change the status quo so that those macro statistics start to normalize. By the time I die, I hope that you can look at Bonton and say, statistically, we're equal to Dallas County as opposed to being horrifically worse. The woman who will manage the market shares his passion. For years, Kim High injected insulin three times a day, desperate to control her diabetes. Got sicker, sicker, sicker. So something said, you know what, girl? What about that that guy over in Bonton? You said you was going to go see. You should go see him. So High introduced herself to Babcock, and he taught her how to plant vegetables and invited her to Bible study. 
Before long, she was tapped to manage Bonton's 40-acre farm. And much to her delight, she was eventually able to stop using insulin. It was just my eating habits was really bad. I started eating better from fresh organic foods and just knowing what to put in my body, actually being conscious of what I put in my body. The market at Bonton Farms will sell and prepare fresh, healthy food at a reasonable price. It will also offer cooking classes, diabetes checks, and yoga sessions. And it will be one of the few places in the Bonton neighborhood where people can gather and eat. High says folks who live nearby are looking forward to it. They're so excited that they actually have something in their neighborhood where they can come and sit down and have a meal with their family or with friends, you know. There's, no, there's never been a place like that in Bonton where you can just come and have a meal. Eventually, Darren Babcock wants people to be able to grab fully prepared takeaway meals from the market that they can heat and eat at home, which will be a real time saver for low-income families. When you live in poverty, you don't control your own schedule. So if you ever go to the DMV to get your license renewed, most of the social services designed to help people in poverty are like the DMV, right? You go and you wait for a half a day. His hope is that the market will change the script for families in South Dallas. And Babcock is determined to do it all without putting bars on the cafe windows. We meet with a lot of developers where politicians are encouraging or pressuring uh, developers to invest down here. And you generally hear them say two things. The skilled labor force here is lacking and it's not safe. We're going to prove them wrong. And he'll get the chance in less than a month. The kitchen is ready, the furniture is in, and the sign is up. The public will get its first taste in early November. In Dallas, I'm Courtney Collins for the Texas Standard. Support for coverage of business on Texas Standard comes from Texas Mutual Insurance Company, a workers' comp provider ensuring compassionate care for injuries of every size at businesses big and small. Learn more at WorkSafeTexas.com. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. As many of our listeners can tell you firsthand, out in West Texas, it doesn't take much for your internet connection to go down. A rainstorm, heavy winds, construction work, someone accidentally cutting a cable, all very real scenarios that can leave you without internet for hours, if not longer. In fact, a listener recently sent us this question from Monahans: Will small West Texas towns ever have access to decent internet? Marfa Public Radio's Carlos Morales went searching for answers. If you're going to try and find a reliable internet connection in rural West Texas, your best bet is to probably head to the library. So that's where we're going today. And remember, this is a library after all, so shh. Well, I'm Andrew Cagle, and we're here at the Ward County Library in Monahans, Texas. Um, I'm 21 years old, and I'm awesome. <laughs> Cagle is sitting at an island of about 15 computers. It's midday, and he's here surfing the web before heading to his job at the local grocery store. There's about 10 more people here doing the same. There's a kid watching YouTube videos of Dragon Ball Z, others applying for jobs, and on any given day, oil field workers come to check their emails before heading to the patch. Cagle says he comes about once a week. His family used to have internet, but that's changed. Now we're really more on like cell phones, mobile hotspot stuff. And that's not too uncommon here. There are about 4,000 households in Ward County, and in a 2017 survey, about 30% said they didn't have internet services at home. And when it comes to those that are connected, most say they are dissatisfied with their service. Brenda Kassar is the director of the Ward County Library. They just got outfitted with faster, more reliable internet. She says she regularly sees more than 50 people a day who come in just to go online. 
after hours, we notice that people are still outside, you know, in, in the parking lot using the Wi-Fi. The library in Monahans is filling the gaps for some of the people that don't have access to reliable internet. Kazar says people here are just used to their connection at home going down. But I mean, for this kind of rural area, you know, that's kind of normal. Like this last weekend, it, w- it was out for a good 10, 12 hours. There are people working on getting rural areas across the country online. People like Chris Peterson. He's with Connected Nation, a nonprofit that advocates for improving broadband internet services. And just to be clear here, broadband has a very specific definition. Today, it's set at a a threshold of 25 megabits per second down and three up. Basically, that just means with broadband, you can comfortably surf the internet, stream high-def movies, play games online, do things that take up a lot of data. Right now, only 13% of Ward County households have access to this type of internet. The thing that's really elusive is demand. So if a provider were to build out into a certain uh, community in Texas, how much demand would there be? It's unclear how much demand there is among Ward County residents. But county officials do know that slow internet can hinder economic development. Teresa Burnett is with the Monahans Chamber of Commerce. As you know, we are flooded with sand mine companies in this area right now. I have 18 sand mine companies within a 50-mile radius of me. In the past, Burnett says a Fortune 500 company was interested in Monahans, but backed out because of the city's lagging internet speed. She doesn't want this to happen to the growing frac sand industry. So she's hoping for fiber, the fastest form of broadband for the whole town. You know, if it was up to me, we would have it today. Unfortunately, because of the expense and just putting everybody in place, uh, it takes a little longer than that. The plan, Burnett says, is to install a ring of fiber around the city that will help with reliability. It's a surefire way to ensure that the internet stays on even if a cable gets cut somewhere. Right now, the city is assessing the costs, but Burnett says they could start the process of installing the ring before the end of the year. In Monahan's, I'm Carlos Morales. Support for Texas Standard comes from the Texas Tuition Promise Fund and the Texas College Savings Plan, administered by the state of Texas, offering a pair of plans that can help families save toward college dreams. More at savenowforcollege.org. From the Texas Standard Newsroom, I'm Alexandra Hart with a roundup of news from across the state. A University of Texas at Austin scientist has been awarded the MacArthur Foundation's prestigious Genius Grant. The foundation yesterday named UT Assistant Chemistry Professor Livia Eberlin as a MacArthur Fellow. And with that recognition comes a $625,000 no-strings-attached grant. Last year, Eberlin and her team announced they had invented a handheld tool used to detect cancer cells. Called the mass spec pen, it can find cancerous tissue in just 10 seconds. That would help surgeons know more quickly if they've removed all of the unhealthy cells while operating on patients. The current method they use can take 30 minutes or more and may yield unreliable results. In an interview with the Texas Standard last year, Eberlin said she hoped that the pen would make the healing process easier for patients. This is not only emotional impact to the patients, mm-hmm. um, the higher survival, but also for the healthcare system, like the savings that you'd have from um, not having to do unnecessary surgeries because, unfortunately, you know, you, you couldn't get all the cancer out. Eberlin is one of 25 recipients of the annual award. 
A voting rights group says Texas is among the list of states they are watching this November. The Brennan Center for Justice says people living in states with close contest and restrictive voting laws should be vigilant on Election Day. KUT's Ashley Lopez reports. Wendy Weiser, the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center, says there are a lot of close races this November. And the outcomes are going to depend not only on the candidates and the voters' choices, but also on whether our voting system is doing its job. It's got to allow eligible Americans to cast their votes, and it must protect the accuracy and fairness of the results. Weiser says she's seeing three major challenges to that. That includes voting restrictions like strict voter ID laws, partisan redistricting, and election security. Weiser is also warning voters to be aware of illegal voter purges in their states. Her group says improper purges have been on the rise in the last couple of years. Weiser says voters should go online and check their voter registration statuses to make sure they were not taken off the rolls before the election. To check in Texas, go to votetexas.gov and click on register to vote. Ashley Lopez, KUT News. Prosecutors say a Border Patrol agent accused of killing four women near Laredo may have used his service weapon to shoot the victims. The Webb County District Attorney says that shell casings found at the crime scenes suggest that an agency issue handgun was used. Agent Juan David Ortiz was arrested on September 15th and is being held on a $2.5 million bond. That's a look at news from across the state. I'm Alexandra Hart from the Texas Standard. Support for these Texas Standard headlines comes from the Texas Secretary of State, providing voters details on required identification for voting in person at the polls. More at votetexas.gov or 800-252-VOTE. 33 minutes past the hour, Texas Standard Time. I'm David Brown. There's a big game at the Texas State Fair this Saturday you may have caught wind of. The Universities of Texas and Oklahoma will face off again in this year's Red River Showdown. It's as big as ever this year, weather permitting, with both teams ranked in the national polls. But rather than look at tomorrow's game, we're about to engage in a bit of time travel, turning the Wayback Machine to 1999. Texas won that matchup 38-28, to but Oklahoma jumped out to a 17-point lead in the first quarter. What was behind that quick start? Well... Turns out it was a bit of gridiron chicanery on an epic scale. Here to tell us more, Jake Trotter. He's a college football writer for ESPN. Jake, welcome to Texas Standard. Yeah, good to be on. What happened in 1999 it involves what's known in football as a play script. And I suppose we should, for folks who may not be totally familiar with that term, explain what a play script actually is. Yeah, so offensive coordinators and play callers in, in football at all levels, they will map out their first few plays on a piece of paper and the team will practice them, you know, the week leading up to the game. And the reason is, you know, two or three fold, you know, you want to uh, get a rhythm offensively. Uh, you want to maybe probe a defense to see, okay, if we run this play, how is the defense going to line up? And uh -huh. so uh, that is what a play script is. Every coordinator has one. And Mike Leach certainly had one actually had two. Uh, going into the 1999 game. Okay, let's talk uh, for a moment about Mike Leach here uh, because he's the main culprit. He, his reputation in college football, I suppose, is uh, as something of a rascal, to put it mildly. At the time, he was Oklahoma's offensive coordinator, and he's since been head coach at Texas Tech and Washington State. So what exactly did he concoct uh, for this 1999 Red River showdown? So he was joking with another assistant coach at Oklahoma the week of the game. Like, hey, you know, it'd be funny. You know, how could we mess with Texas before the game? And 
it was suggested that what if we came up with a, a decoy play script and laid it on the field somewhere and, 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 and maybe Texas would pick it up. Well, they had a good laugh about it, but Leach decided, hey, why not do it? So let's try it out and see how it works. And so the week of the game, he's coming up with this fake play script. And there's a lot of nuance in it because he wants to create a script, should Texas use it, that's going to complement the plays he's actually going to run. So in other words, if you're going to run, let's just keep it simple. If you're going to run a sweep to the left on the play script, it would say sweep to the right. So that the defense will go to the right, the play actually goes to the left, and you uh-huh. get a big gain out of it. Uh, so uh, that was number one. The other thing is he had to create like the terminology for this script, complex enough that it would seem real, but simple enough so that Texas could, could understand it. Then he has it laminated and puts uh, Kale Gundy, who's a, an assistant at Oklahoma, uh, his name at the top to make it look as official as possible. <laughs> and then he goes forward with how, you know, uh, trying to figure out how to plant the script so that Texas will find it. So it has to look like it has accidentally, what, fallen out of coaches, uh, Oklahoma coaches' hands. Uh, how did he do that? So he called a couple of the players over before the game, and he gives the script to this guy named Trent Smith, who was a freshman tight end. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to wait. I'm going to walk off. Uh, then, then, then go by the Texas bench there and like you're jogging and act like you're trying to put this script in your, in your pads or your, your belt and let it fall. But, but don't act like you know uh, that it fell. Just act like you think you, you tucked it in properly and then just run off. Sure enough, a student assistant for Texas named Casey Horney saw it. Uh, he picked it up, and he takes it to the Texas locker room and gives it to the defensive coordinator, Carl Reese, who cannot believe that they have found uh, a, a gold mine like this and, and can't believe the, the break that they've caught. So what happens as the game gets started? Well, you can imagine it didn't go very well for Texas. They, they're consulting the script, and they think they know OU's plays before they're even, they're, they're even run. Uh, and uh, OU goes on to score uh, another field goal, another touchdown. They're up 17 to nothing. And at that point, Texas says, you know what, we've been had – we need to get back to what we were planning to do originally. Uh-huh. And Texas was the better team that year. They come back and actually win the game 38-28. It was the biggest comeback that Texas had had, had completed in 34 years. So uh, as Mike Leach put it, it would have been a lot more legendary had Oklahoma won the sucker. You know, I think a lot of people hearing this tale for the first time may have the same reaction. That's cheating, isn't it? Or <laughs> no? I yeah, I think it falls more under the, the gamesmanship of sports than, than necessarily cheating. I mean, is I mean, I think even the Texas guys thought it was funny. You know, they didn't think it was funny at the time. <laughs> yeah, they thought it was funny 19 years later, and they and they, they think it's especially think it's funny because they ended up winning the game. Had they not won the game, then oh my goodness, it would have been as my as Leach put it, uh, even more legendary. Jake Trotter is a college football writer for ESPN. He's en route to Dallas, where he's going to be covering the Red River Showdown this weekend. We'll have a link to his latest at texasstandard.org. Jake, thanks for your time. Yeah, no problem. Support for Texas Standard comes from Texas CASA, advocating for a safe and positive future for all Texas children in the child protection system. Volunteer information at becomeacasa.org. Every child has a chance. It's you.
You got attuned to the Texas Standard. I'm David Brown. South Texas, that's where I stay. Those words from the late rapper Pimp C, edited for broadcast fans, will note, exemplify the fierce regional pride you'll find in the Houston area rap scene. It's the subject of a new book, Houston Rap Tapes, an oral history of Bayou City hip hop, which is out this month from the University of Texas Press. It's something of an encyclopedic look at the local scene, told over dozens of interviews. Texas MCs with platinum-selling records, but also the lesser-known rappers, producers, promoters, and hustlers comprising the lifeblood of Houston hip-hop. Lance Scott Walker is the man behind this new book and a native of Galveston, Texas. Lance, welcome to the Texas Standard. Thank you for having me. This is an expanded edition of your book, I suppose we should point out. How long have you been working on this project? I mean, making these contacts, compiling these interviews, that sort of thing. Since 2005, the photographer Peter Best started this project on his own. Uh, as just a photo project in 2004, and then he brought me aboard in early 2005. And our other books came out in 2013 and 2014, but basically I just never stopped. And so that, that ended up resulting in the, the new edition where we were able to stuff a lot more into what we were doing. So when you, if you're starting out in 2004, 2005, um, tell us a little bit about how Houston sort of put itself on the map uh, when it comes to hip-hop music. I mean, how far back do you have to go to sort of see the roots here? Well, the the way we did it, we you know we at the point where we started, it was right before there was a big Houston wave of popular artists that that you know got into the mainstream. Mike Jones, Slim Thug, Paul Wall. So we really used that as sort of a starting point and a reverse point because we we were right before that wave happened. So that was great because it got us in with a lot of people we might not otherwise have been able to meet once everything started and got crazy. Fofos, I'm tipping. Wood grain, I'm gripping. Catch me lane switching with the paint dripping. Turn your neck and your dang missing. Me and Slim, we ain't tripping. I'm figure flipping and sir sipping like do or die. I'm poking. We just went backwards through the history from that point. Um, so we kind of got to see everything happen. It was really a, a watershed moment. But, you know, our interest was in telling the history, so it was nice to be able to have that sort of timeline to work with. Mm-hmm. But but what about the history itself? Why Houston? Why did it become a hotbed for this music? Well, you know, it's a huge city. It's a, it's a big southern city. It's a, the largest city in the south. And uh, there's people who come to Houston uh, to work from all over the region, all over the world, really. So it's a very fertile, rich, cultural city, as people in Houston themselves know. Um, but I don't think it's really looked on that way, or hasn't been, at least classically, uh, in the past, as, as far as the the, na- the national hip-hop scene. And so, you know, it being such a massive city with lots of creative people in it, they sort of fended for themselves and, and you know, made their own records and released them on their own labels and created their own scene. You know, I think anytime something is fertile like that, and that there's just lots and lots of artists making records, it always provides an, an, an interesting area in which to sort of micro-focus. Hmm. So Houston, obviously, the first love comes from the fact that I lived there for 14 years. I'm <laughs> right. from Galveston. Uh-huh. But, you know, once you start really getting into it, it's just such a mass, massive cultural cachet. In, in the foreword, Willie D., who's one of the rappers from the Ghetto Boys, says, I can't stand the writers, reporters, and so-called journalists who stick microphones in the face of people and they don't know what they're talking about. And he goes on to say, this was definitely not the case with you and the photographer uh, working with you, Peter Best. Uh, say something more about how you got to know your subject, how you, how you first got immersed in, in their world. 
lots of listening, uh, lots of listening, <laughs> both 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 to the music and uh, and to the stories. You know, the whole uh, reason that that this project came about, like I said, Peter Best started it off as a photo project, but after he had been working on it for a few months, he said, you know, every time I, I go out and I do photo shoots, I hear these amazing stories. It was just there was so much for us to to work with um, as we developed our project. Lots of getting idea an idea of what we really wanted to do mm-hmm. and getting really re- getting really good at explaining that to people very simply and and bringing um, examples of our work as as we as I started transcribing interviews and as he started printing photos we'd bring sort of a mock up book with us to the neighborhoods and show people hey huh. look this is this is what we're working on yeah. so we were, we would try to be as transparent as we could um, you know, being a couple of white guys coming into the neighborhood, uh, we, we, we felt very welcomed and, um, and we felt very lucky to be there. You know, it's, it's interesting because you mentioned Paul Wall is a name that I think even casual hip hop fans might recognize. Bun B. Big Bun B, the baby, Mr. Woodgrain. With diamonds up against them, balling through your hood, man. But there are dozens of artists who never achieve that level of recognition uh as you were telling their stories was were there some that that sort of uh i don't know were more illuminating uh, something anything that struck stuck out to you uh as you talked to those folks who were working the trenches well you know those are those are fascinating stories for me um because a lot of people that i interview in the book haven't ever really been interviewed before you know they, they might be artists that People know from here or there, oh, yeah, he was on that song. Okay, I know that big song. That was really popular. Yeah, but have you ever heard from that person? Have you ever heard their story? Do you know anything about, you know, what what they went through? Maybe they were on this one big hit song, but uh, what about the the rest of what was going on in their lives? So, you know, for for me, that was the most interesting thing. Somebody who's been interviewed dozens and dozens of times is, you know, they they know the game. they've, They've been there. They've done that. But uh, sometimes there'd be people who hadn't really got a chance to tell that story, and they were really enthusiastic about it, and they really opened up. And you know, in a couple of cases, I had to call somebody back and say, "Hey, listen, I went through our interview and I transcribed this part. Are you okay with me? You know, running this mm-hmm. part?" And they said, "Oh yeah, oh yeah. You know, I've been waiting to do that interview for a long time." Mm. So you know, th- those were the fascinating stories for me. Yeah, you know, it's funny because you know, you think about Houston hip hop, and it's obviously. Uh, it's not homogenous. I mean, you've got the South Side and, and the North Side, right? You've, mm-hmm. you've got what happened back in the 70s, and you've got what's happening as we look toward the future. But if someone were to press you on a through line here, I mean, something that kind of ties together the success of Houston rap, what would mm-hmm. it be? Oh, Rap-A-Lot Records, for sure. My mother's always dressing, I ain't living right, but I ain't going out without a fight. See, every time I... Rap a lot records was the was the label that you know the first it wasn't I wouldn't say it's the first label in Houston that was releasing hip hop records but it was the first certainly the first hip hop label and the way that James Prince uh, structured his label you know it was, was proved inspiring for generations to follow people that had nothing to do with rap a lot as far as their recording career still kind of looked to him and said okay well this is this is the way you can do it you know you can make a record label and you can 
you can keep it here in town and you can do it things your own way. I mean, even the, the late DJ Screw, who released tapes out of his house uh, and eventually opened a store that just sold his records, even he was influenced by that. And, you know, so and Rapalot Records is still a relevant record label. They still release records. And, you know, James Prince just wrote a book this year. So that's certainly a, a constant thread that everybody in Houston is aware of and, and, and I would say inspired by. Houston Rap Tapes, an oral history of Bayou City hip-hop, out October 15th from the University of Texas Press. The author and the interviewer behind it, Lance Scott Walker. Lance, thanks so much for taking a few minutes out to talk with us on the Texas Standard. It's fascinating. Thanks so much for having me. Support for Texas Standard comes from Rand Group. Providing NetSuite ERP solutions built in the cloud. More at softwareaspromised.com. I'm Sean Petrie, and I'm with the Typewriter Rodeo, and we are a group of friends who type poems on the spot for people all over the state. And this one is from a listener request for Vicky. Addiction Recovery. You think you're going it alone. You think this daily struggle, those nights curled up, telling yourself, no, just this one time won't be fine. Resisting that wave-like urge to give in just this once. You think all that happens alone? You think your friends, family, and even smiling strangers aren't there for you every single day? They aren't. Just like a seed doesn't have sweet rain, doesn't have tender soil, doesn't have a higher power shining down. All of that cuddled love, seen and unseen, there, always, to help you keep growing through each daily grateful battle. I'm Sean Petrie with the Typewriter Rodeo, and you're listening to the Texas Standard. Support for the Typewriter Rodeo comes from Texas Children's Hospital, focused on outcomes and care, and providing treatment to kids in the Lone Star State and beyond for more than 60 years. Texas Children's Hospital, personalized care for every child. More at texaschildrens.org. You send us a poem idea, any idea will do. We send it to our friends at the Typewriter Rodeo, and then you can tune in each Friday here on The Standard. You can also find the Typewriter Rodeo anytime on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And here we are wrapping up the first week of October. Feel like fall yet, anyone? It also means it's Friday, of course, and time to check in about the week in Texas politics with the Texas Tribune's editor-in-chief, Emily Ramshaw. Emily, happy weekend. Hey, howdy. It's going to be a big news weekend. That seems uh, pretty certain. Former President Obama is continuing his string of Democratic endorsements. On Monday, he released the names of 260 candidates he supported from across the country, 11 of whom from Texas, but one notable Democrat from the Lone Star State not on that list. Beto O'Rourke. What 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 was that about? Uh, any explanation? And how did how did the uh, senatorial candidate uh, respond? So I think a lot of folks are asking, you know, why isn't Obama uh, endorsing Beto O'Rourke? The answer appears to be that Beto O'Rourke does not want that endorsement. 
he told my colleague Julian Aguilar yesterday, quote, I don't think we're interested in an endorsement from Obama. So I think, you know, the issue here is that uh, Beto is not sure how an endorsement from Obama will play in Texas. It's obviously going to be a close race. I think he's hoping if, you know, Obama stays out of it, it may give him a better chance of winning. Very interesting. You know, more uh, questions this week about how the Texas Ledge responds to allegations of sexual harassment raised against lawmakers. Now we have a a, a new case. Uh, Who's involved and what's that about? Right. So State Senator Charles Schwartner, there are uh, these allegations, I guess, leveled against him by a graduate student at the University of Texas that uh, he sent her some unwanted photographs. Uh, he has said he absolutely did not do that. Well, now uh, lawyers for Schwartner, who's a Georgetown Republican, basically say that UT has hired a former federal prosecutor, mm. Johnny Sutton, you may know that name, mm-hmm. to help investigate the accusation against him. Very interesting. Uh, the, the Trib is reporting that the Senate is taking a wait and see approach about all this. What does that mean? Yes, you know, the Senate has not does not have a strong track record of opening its own investigations into lawmakers who are accused of sexual misconduct. In this case, the Senate is saying, look, this is a University of Texas affair. We're going to wait and see what comes out of that investigation. Uh, you know, we're not sure this is something for us yet. I see. I noticed on the Texas Tribune's homepage this morning a, a really uh, interesting headline, how to know if you're spending too much on housing in Texas, I think just about everyone would love to know the answer to that. But what is that all about? Sure. So what the answer is, is if you are a renter, you are probably paying too much for housing. You hmm. know, what we found in this investigation basically is that, you know, life uh, and affordability in Texas are getting worse and worse for the middle class. And, you know, those who can't afford to buy homes are really those hit the hardest. You know, we found that rent is now uh, accounting for more of people's annual paychecks than mortgages are. Wow. So I think this is, a, you know, an important finding, particularly for us in Austin, as we look at affordability in this community. Well, if you want to find out if you're spending too much on your housing, head over to texastribune.org, where Emily Ramshaw is editor-in-chief of the Texas Tribune. Thanks so much, Emily. Have a great weekend. Thank you. You too. And you are listening to the Texas Standard. Joining us once again in the studio, it's our social media editor, Wells Dunbar, and I think I know what the talk of Texas is on this Friday. You would be correct, yes. Today's cloture vote on Supreme Court nomination of Brett Kavanaugh. The talk on social media, the talk on our Facebook page, specifically facebook.com slash Texas Standard. Lots of people sounding off there. Linda Ray Milton Mason says that Republican senators like McConnell, Cornyn, and Cruz have behaved in a disgraceful manner throughout this process. There are reasons of temperament and honesty that should have been considered, Hmm. Linda says. These senators could have accepted these objections as legitimate and ended this days ago. Meanwhile, Carolyn Kresik-Liss asks, I think if Judge Kavanaugh valued the institution of the Supreme Court, he would withdraw his nomination. She echoes a complaint I've seen a lot of places, David, that uh, even regardless uh, uh, of the entire situation regarding him and uh, Christine uh, Blasey uh, Blasey Ford, uh, his performance last Thursday, Carolyn says, demonstrated to the world an animosity and partisanship that will forever leave a question mark as to his ability to fairly hear some types of cases before the court. Uh, You know, obviously we're hearing a different range of perspectives. Cindy Hayes Smart, she says that Democrats got what they wanted in this scenario, an FBI investigation, but me uh, and now it's essentially sour grapes on their part uh, that they are not uh, that they are still raising objections. Cindy says that not only have they destroyed Kavanaugh's reputation, but they've destroyed every witness involved, including Dr. Ford. So obviously this is a situation that is just uh, really 
really difficult situation for yeah. people to talk about and and and, and process and and, and uh, find any sort of common ground on. Well, you know, it's it's interesting because uh, I covered the uh, Clarence Thomas hearings back in the early 90s, mm-hmm. uh, confirmation there. And I remember people saying at the time, and I think we were talking about this a little earlier in the broadcast, that many people at that time were saying, well, the confirmation process itself is just broken. There is mm-hmm. something about the spectacle that it has become. Uh, I, I think you could quite easily make that uh, argument. In fact, many people are making yeah. that argument right now. Certainly a lot of questions about the FBI investigation itself and the privacy that surrounded it. Yeah, uh, and the limited scope, the you know indeed. tight time frame that they were faced, uh, that that was imposed upon the FBI essentially. So yeah, all these questions continuing to play out this weekend. Uh, I believe what did you say at the top of the show? We we're looking at a thirty-hour yep. uh, hold, That's essentially. Right. Well, what it is actually is it's thirty hours of debate. It limits the, uh, right, limits it right. to thirty hours of debate, which would basically mean that we would be looking at a vote uh, sometime around Saturday afternoon if they keep to that schedule. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely. And again, we know. We just saw this procedural vote. We don't know, you know, if that's indicative of what's going to come forward. But yeah, going to be a very busy news weekend yeah. for lots of folks. Yeah, out we there. saw we saw one Republican uh, vote against Kavanaugh, a Democrat vote for Kavanaugh. So the story is far from over. Keep it right here for the very latest. We're out of time for the big broadcast. You can keep up with the news at TexasStandard.org. Till Monday, I'm David Brown, along with Wells Dunbar here and the rest of the Texas Standard team, wishing you a wonderful weekend. Philanthropic support for Texas Standard comes from Casey and Scott O'Hare, the Winkler Family Foundation, Lynn Dobson and Greg Waldridge, Adrian Killam, and the George Huntington family. Additionally, Texas Mutual Insurance Company is a founding sponsor of Texas Standard. Would your company or organization like to be a sponsor as well? Contact your local station for opportunities within your community. For statewide sponsorships, visit TexasPublicMediaNetwork.com. Public Radio International.